Parole Podcast, your favorite podcast is back. I am back with royalty, another kind of sex drama. In this episode, we will be traveling on three continents with our guest, Prince Yoel Makonnen, great-grandson of Emperor Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia. Ethiopia, we're back, and this time with someone who is growing and making space for African storytelling with his production company, Old World, New World, co-founded with his wife, Ariana. If you want to know more about his background, there is a delicious New York Times article that you'll find in the show notes. You'll hear more about the article later in the conversation. Yoel has written two books so far, Last Gate of the Emperor. Same, same. Link on the show notes. He is a producer, a writer, as if this was not enough. He is a corporate lawyer by day. What African stories did you read as a kid? Personally, I was not reading them, but hearing about them. You know the whole African storytelling way. Maybe one or two in my curated classes. However, when it came to reading classical literature, I read copiously the ones that I found in our library at home or here and there at school. I should add the ones I read at uh, the Centre Culturel Français, CCF. What was I reading? In our household, we had a whole collection of Tintin. I read Les Malheurs de Sophie. And if my memory serves me well, the whole Contest de Ségur. That gives an idea. Yoel and his team are writing stories for children that I hope will be shared at school. They are working on producing a biopic of the Emperor. No need to add pressure, but you know, I can't wait. Who knows, maybe my production company will be joining you. Christmas is fast approaching, and for those of you who put pressure on yourselves to buy things, let me nudge you into buying things of value. Books. The Last Gate of the Emperor is available in two tomes, and you can purchase it online. My birthday is next month, and I'm already planning to buy books for myself as birthday gifts. No, no, I'm not a sad person. This is how seriously I take reading. Parole Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms. Parole Podcast via Boy Studios is also on Patreon. If you want to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. There you go, another podcast with... Uh an Ethiopian who's living in the U.S. Who are you, sir? Good afternoon and good evening on your side, I guess, and morning for us here. Uh, I'm Prince Yoel Makonnen, and um, I'm the great-grandson of Emperor Haile Selassie. Um, and I've grown up actually mostly in the West. Um, I grew up in Europe and now uh, live in the United States. And um, I am um, an attorney an author, and also now a film and TV producer. So just give us a glimpse about what is Ethiopia and what was Ethiopia. Maybe by the time you get to know the country when you were younger, a bit older, what is your Ethiopia? That's a very nice question. I like that. What's my Ethiopia? My Ethiopia, growing up, as I was saying, um, I grew up in Europe mostly, and that's because shortly before I was born, there was a revolution that shook the country in Ethiopia, a communist revolution. And so the monarchy and, the, uh, and the, all of that was uh, abolished. And my family, my nuclear family, me, my mother and my uh, father and, and brother were actually outside the country. So we couldn't go back. And so Ethiopia for me was always this very distant place. All I had were really the stories and the history that uh, my family and, and friends uh, of our family would pass down to me. 
and it was a very nostalgic sentiment towards Ethiopia. And so I grew up with the, you know, kind of the nostalgia again, saying, you know, the great times and and uh, the the grand times that were when uh, my family uh, was still there and in power. But then I had the opportunity to go for the first time when I was a teenager, I think I was 13, I finally got to see my country. And uh, I even um, ended up living there for a few years and I finished high school there. So I got to know uh, my country more closely and seeing all of the changes that had happened. So obviously the image I had of Ethiopia was very different. Uh, But when I got there, I was really happy to be there. I felt reconnected with my roots and my people uh, learning the language and, and, and just living in our culture. So I'm always, and I always have a, a very warm sentiment towards Ethiopia. Um, all of my family, I feel like that's pretty much all uh, that we're about is about our country and making sure that it's okay. And so my Ethiopia is, is a place of great history, great pride, uh, but also now great challenges. And um, we're hoping for a better future. Absolutely. Um, I think it's 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 safe to say that Ethiopia has been known, like in terms of African countries, for people who think that Africa is a continent, I think they do know the country. How did you learn the language? Because it's easy to say, like, hey, I lived abroad, and some other reasons why you spoke French and you know other languages. Mm-hmm. But how did you get to learn Amarinya? Knowing that it's not an easy language, I'm sp- I'm speaking as a foreigner, <laughs> and I still find that the language like super super hard. How did you learn it? Did you learn it at home? Did you learn it outside? Yeah, um, you're right. It's it's really hard language uh, in the sense that I grew up speaking French mostly in English, and I even um, you know was in a French high school, so we learned Latin, and I thought those <laughs> were the most complicated languages. And then I got back home to Ethiopia. And my, so I, I spoke very little. I spoke a few words. I would understand how to, you know, point to certain things and, and say their name or food. Uh, okay. But I, I wasn't able to speak fully. So my mother made sure that I had a Amharic language tutor who would come okay. to my house uh, when we moved back to Ethiopia, when I was uh, finishing high school there. Every Saturday morning, he would come. And you can imagine I was a high schooler, so I was always going out the Friday before. (laughs) So it was always a very uh, tough way to wake up in the morning and taking these classes. And I realized how uh, rich and deep the language was because once um, I was learning how to read and write, Mm. uh, which, you know, it's one thing to learn just how to speak. But then when you actually learn to read and write, you can see how complex the language is. Um, And we have over 200 alphabetic letters and so just learning that uh, Alex you can imagine uh, (laughs) takes a lot of time and it's very different from from any other language so I had to kind of learn brand new but uh, in the end it was a lot of fun (laughs) because (laughs) I thought it was just beautiful beautiful to write it it's it's it it makes me think a bit of Arabic uh, Mm -hmm. and Hebrew obviously those are the three oldest language yeah and they just have a very beautiful way of being written so I enjoyed that part. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. All right. So that's Ethiopia back, you know, back in the days. Let me tell mm-hmm. you this. I had a uh, really, my first impression was uh, the first time I went to Addis was years ago in 99. And then I went in 2020. And these are two completely different countries. Like, seriously, like other than the language, I think there's uh, 
a whole lot of difference because of the image that we had um, in Burundi, the uh, satellite, aka Western, you know, images. I always wondered what it was like to be an Ethiopian and seeing those stories being told, but at the same time seeing the country being like changing dr like dramatically. Mm. What do you see as as a thirteen year old? You're back home. You're learning your language. You're doing this, but at the same time, outsiders are like, "Oof, you know, nothing is happening in Ethiopia. Maybe they don't have any history." Like knowing that Ethiopians mm. are really, <laughs> you guys are know a thing or two about pride, you know, nationalism, <laughs> yeah. the whole thing. How did you, the young you, and then the adult you? Because we're gonna talk about your work and obviously the power of images and the power of narrative and everything that goes along with that. What was it like to be you younger, basically? Mm -hmm. Well, when I was younger, as I was saying, the, the image I had was really what my family was passing down. And obviously being of the royal family, you know, they made sure I know my history and, and explained what happened. But at the same time, like you were saying, the images that we were seeing, uh, you know, uh, were uh, about the famine and um, always pretty negative news. And so it was difficult for me to reconcile both. And to be honest, there were even times where I, I didn't want to associate myself too much with Ethiopia. I just kind of wanted to integrate and, you know, uh, just be a young, uh, you know, French or European kid because it was so difficult to see these images and, and, and think that's, you know, my home country and my people. So it was really difficult and, and reconciling both stories that are a bit conflicting one is like oh ethiopia is really grand and has this great history and great yeah. people and then on on the media we see you know there's famine there's corruption there's wars there's problems and so growing up it was very challenging and i think that also part of that trip going back and and living back home uh, got me a sense to see both sides and and also kind of reconcile what what the truth is there and i was you know uh really reminded that there are a lot of problems obviously you can't just gloss over that uh issues in the in the country with you know uh, uh education being low and, and poverty and things like that but to me what i understood is that that's not the whole story every country has problems yeah. right uh, but every country also has great history and ethiopia is one with great history and so when I learned just the cultural aspect, the language, the expression, the art, the poetry of Ethiopia, I just realized how uh, rich of a, of a history and culture we have. And so that makes me always very proud. And, I, and like you said, Ethiopians, you are very proud of our history. And so that's like my mission now is understanding really that, uh, you know, the power of image and, 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 and the history that you present to the world is how people will perceive you and how you will perceive yourself. Big time. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm going to just uh, add this. I have Ethiopian friends. I'm not sure if they really have a hold on a, the whole history thing, but they're really prideful. Good thing. <laughs> Works. Anyway. Uh, so then again, you went to Lycée Gepremarien because obviously it's for French. I think it's the only French Lycée. I did not or... actually, Alex. No way. I went to the International Community School, ICS, the American school. Oh, and how... How did you learn French then? You went to ah, oh, you came to so France. I yeah I gr I grew up in France, um, but by the time yeah by the time I went back to Ethiopia, um, 
decided to go into the American school system. Okay, yeah. okay. So, and then yeah. you come to, to France, you study here in the south of France, um, mm -hmm. and then you went to the U.S., then again, kind of what happened, like, why law school, why not, you know, business or engineering or doctor, what happened to you? I always wanted to be a lawyer, uh, even since a young age. It was one of the professions that kind of, you know, we'd see on TV or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, just it was just there. And I remember people always saying, you should be a lawyer, you should be a lawyer. So I don't know yeah. if maybe it started with that. And then I internalized it and said, I want to be a lawyer. <laughs> but okay. uh, I just from my first memory, I can always remember when I thought about like a career, it would be law, I just thought it was such a respectful field. And I just really enjoy uh, reading and arguing and, and, and proving that I'm right. Uh, and that's why people were saying always, oh, you should be a lawyer. Must I think. Be it wasn't supposed <laughs> to be a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, more like, okay, yeah, I've heard enough of from you. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what I decided to pursue. But interestingly, I actually started with business school, um, because by that point I was, um, more interested in going into the business world. Mm -hmm. And then later, um, after I graduated, I worked for a few years and the law school, uh, dream I had, uh, kind of came back to me and I thought it would be a good pairing between business and then uh, law and uh, ended up being what I am now, which is a, a corporate lawyer, a business lawyer. So that was really what I was trying to get to. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you to compare and contrast the French system and the American system in terms of education. What did you like the most? <laughs> or was it like, I know, I know, these are tricky questions. Uh, yeah. Because I went no, to an American business one. school here in Lyon. And I'm okay. like, I will never go back to a French system again. Like the way it's been taught, and, right. you know, the, the whole freedom, let us say, of speech over there. Where did you go? Did it's you go to Cefam. Yes. Cefam, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So the school, yeah, the school I went in the south of France is called Ceram, which is a sister uh, college, oh, okay. uh, which there is the go. same system, Euro-American, where you do, you know, two years in, in France and then two years in the States. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because this this question you asked, it, it comes up sometimes when I have conversations with people and I feel really grateful to have done both. Um, so my top line answer would be, I think there's the best of both worlds would be to mix both. And I'll tell you the, the what I like about each. So the French system is very rigorous, as you know, uh, from a very young age, you're really like doing uh so so much amount of work and reading that you yeah. know is really in america it's almost like college level and yeah, um, yeah so you learn really the the hard way and you know teachers are really tough how they grade you you know they're like oh <laughs> excellent work you know 13 out of 20 like <laughs> excellent and you're like excellent if it's excellent it should be like 20 or or 19. <laughs> true that true that <laughs> Right. So it's it's almost a mentality where uh, the French system is really saying, you know, you have to do a lot in order to mm. to achieve, uh, you know, greatness. And so I think it's a good way to make you work harder and, uh, you know, really force you to really make your own ideas, your own opinions. And so and in the American system. What I like is a bit of the simplicity. And, and again, mm. as I was saying, I think that you 
you gradually kind of go to bigger and bigger assignments. But I will say that I remember when I transferred to the American school in Addis, um, I was definitely a year or two ahead of my class. Um, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like the stuff, <laughs> some of the stuff they were doing was so basic to me and, and I was getting great grades and A. And I remember they would put like stickers and stuff. And I was like, oh, this system is, is really like the opposite. It's like you did great. Like you showed up, you, you completed 10 questions and, you know, you have an A plus and, you know, great job. And it's funny because I thought, well, I'm really not going to get what I need to, you know, be like really uh, uh, up to speed when I go to college. Uh, but I realize now, looking back, that it's it's almost like a philosophy how education is represented in both systems. In America, I think there's a big part about encouraging the individual, saying, you know, keep going, you're doing great. Yeah. And it really helps you psychologically. So I think if you could meld both, uh, like, for instance, my kids, I, I think my plan would be to have them go to uh, French school first and then American school. So same same thing I did. It's so funny because I was just having the same conversation. I said, high school will be in French for my kids, as if. But maybe the French really teaches, I mean the French. French system really crushes your soul really early on so that you know that oh, yeah. the earth, you know, the whole world is not about you. So <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty exactly. sure people will, like, like, will agree on this because, you know, 13, you're like, what? What is this? 16, it's like you're like Blaise Pascal or something. Or, or you, or <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> the reason why I'm saying all of this may be because, you know, you may ask yourself, like, what are we doing here education-wise? We're part of the diaspora who, you know, we've been in different places and we can compare, basically. I want to talk about education and how to educate ourselves back home with the things that we've learned and how we can use them for the good and to progress, basically. I'll just say that because I still count myself as an African who one day will be back or just move around at least. And I wanted to ask you what you're doing with the film industry. But before we go into that, just introduce yourself as a film producer and a director and, you know, any other things that you're working on. Sure. So my wife and I, we launched our own production company, which is called Old World, New World. And our mission is to tell powerful black stories that inspire global audiences. And so in this role, we uh, have basically been using kind of our skill set that we have. Neither of us is uh, from film school or anything like that. But we are art lovers and film lovers and music lovers and really creatives at heart. And so it all started when we got married. The New York Times did a, a piece on our wedding and it went viral and it got a lot of attention. And at the time we started receiving a lot of messages from people out in the film industry, TV industry, and asking us, hey, uh, you know, your story is so fascinating. Do you, what, you know, are you guys making any content about that, films, TV? And so we started, we had already the idea before that, but this exposure really got us kind of uh, uh, open and, and, and people started reaching out. So we started making trips to LA to meet people here. And then uh, eventually two years later, so this is January, 2020, we decided to move to LA to uh, do this uh, properly because uh, we decided, you know, we have a number of projects we'd like to do and they all involve film or TV. 
and we thought you know it's good to take trips to LA but you have to kind of be here when you're you're serious and you and you want to get things really off the ground and so uh we are uh I'll describe us as writer slash producers where we both write the the projects that we are interested in and bringing to life and also looking to produce them so that's that's in a nutshell what we're doing here what would you say? What are you working on at the moment? Because the last time we talked was last year. You had released a book that I can see from under, you know, in the background. Mm-hmm. What is this all about? Um, obviously, this is December, so let's just say Christmas is around the corner. Kids are talking about stories or whatever. What are you working on? What have you been working on for the last two years? Mm-hmm. Sure. So as you see uh, behind me, like you said, there's uh, Last Gate of the Emperor, which is uh, a book I co-wrote with uh, Kwame Mbalia. Actually, if you see next to it, the one with the darker cover is book two. Oh, so there's been a second okay, book go. that came out. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. J- yeah. Thank you. It came out uh, this uh, past uh, July. Okay. Uh, so we that's mainly what I've been working on personally over the past uh, couple years. Uh, but at the same time, also working on, I would say, two major projects, or maybe even three. Uh, the first one, actually, interestingly, is because I was mentioning that when our wedding story went viral, a lot of people were interested in, is that going to become a film? And so that we've been working on. So it's literally a love story about me and uh, my wife, Ariana, and how we met. And we have this very infamous meeting where we met in a nightclub, basically, uh, which people thought was so interesting. And then the story develops them from there. I don't tell her exactly who I am in my background. And then eventually uh-huh. I tell her and that's a whole big reveal. Uh, and so there's kind of all the elements of, of like a fun love story movie. <laughs> so we're working on that. Yeah, it's, it's funny because we never thought about that as, as like a project, but uh, it seems people were clamoring for it. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make that. So that's number one. And um, the other two are centered around Ethiopia and, and uh, Emperor Haile Selassie and, and kind of that uh, era of Ethiopia. And we're making one version is going to be a film and another version is going to be a TV series. Oh, okay. And so initially we wanted to do a film about Emperor Haile Selassie, mm-hmm. the biopic about his life. And it just became so unwieldy because he, he had such a long life and he reigned for such a long mm. time. It's really hard to get that into a film. So we decided, you know what, let's do that in a TV format and we'll do a TV series. And I'll just, the short pitch of it is like a, the crown meets Game of Thrones. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the reason I, I had the Game of Thrones is because... Uh, in the crown, uh, we want to also cover the story like that of him coming into power because that that would really take a lot of uh, uh, you know we need long runway to to kind of explain yeah. his life and how he became an emperor. Yeah. But unlike the crown, <laughs> our our succession uh, uh, events are not as peaceful. There there's when when a king dies, you know everybody's out and making their claim and the mm. knives are out and it's like no me I should be me. So it has the Game of Thrones elements where. You know, there's a lot of like battling and political scheming. Yeah. So that should be a lot of fun. And then for the film, we are just going to focus on a slice of of uh, Haile Selassie's life mm-hmm. and and broaden it more into a story about how in World War II, Ethiopia was one of the first theaters of battle. 
and a lot of people don't know that because at the time the Europeans were appeasing, you know, the the Nazis and the and the fascists, and you know Ethiopia was being threatened by Italy to be invaded, and so Emperor Haile Selassie, you know, he made his great speech at the League of Nations and and warned everyone that if they didn't act, it would spread to everybody, and you know it's us first, and then you you know us today and you tomorrow. And so the Europeans didn't really want to fight. They, they had just finished World War One, and Ethiopia was saying, you know, you have to come and help us as a member of the League of Nations, which was the United Nations, mm. right, before. before. Um, and so that story is really a powerful one about, you know, and, and it has parallels to today. If you think about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, for instance, it's the same dynamic where there's a greater power, a bigger country, that invades another smaller one just because it can. And the international community is just standing by. Now, obviously Ukraine is getting a little bit more help than Ethiopia did at the time, because we didn't even get, we were embargoed, we couldn't get any weapons or anything like that. So we were really crushed and the emperor had to flee into exile. And then it took about five years for him to come back and, and reclaim the throne. In that story, it's just good because it has this international element to it and, and kind of a world stage type story where Africa can be shown how we interact with the world and how in um, in terms of moral clarity, you know, in media and just in history in general, uh, Westerners have always kind of appropriate that, that for themselves and acting like other places haven't rose up and, and been the moral voice. But in this case, it's actually... Uh, a leader from Africa who is the moral voice, right? So I think it's very powerful. And on top of that, there's also an element of uh, in our stories that we're working on uh, with our production company is that we always want to have an element that bridges the diaspora, that creates mm -hmm. bridges between the diaspora. So uh, stories about how people from either Africa or African diaspora come together and you know do something great. And in this case, we have the story about this black American pilot named John Robinson, who's just a fascinating character. I don't know if you've ever even heard of him, Alex. No, no. Right? Yeah, you haven't. And and he has a fascinating story. He he deserves just a film of his own, really. Uh, but he was this black pilot. He was a, a genius. He was really advanced. He was he taught himself. He became a, a mechanic first, and then an engineer, and then a pilot. He fought um, alongside Ethiopia against Italy, and that's really fascinating okay. because the Americans, Black Americans, had started all these protests in March when Italy was trying to invade Ethiopia, and most, mm -hmm. a, a lot actually wanted to sign up and go fight in Ethiopia against this, you know, white imperialist uh, power that was trying mm -hmm. to invade the last independent nation in Africa. And so a lot of people felt a bond with Ethiopia and feeling like they had to stand up and they were refused. The, the, the American government basically said, you cannot leave. And, and if you do, you know, we'll take your passport to you. You'll be you know, mm. uh, rejected. Uh, for, uh, and so, but John Robinson was so determined because he felt like as a black pilot, he, he was better than so many other pilots, but he couldn't get a proper job as a pilot. He couldn't even attend uh, aviation school. And so he decided, you know what, I want to go prove myself. And he took this opportunity and went to Ethiopia and met with the emperor. The emperor took a great liking to him. He had a, a great uh, ethic and, and, and was a great pilot. 
And so he named them head of the Ethiopian Imperial Air Force. And he fought okay. alongside, yeah, wow. our uh, Ethiopian, his brothers, uh, African brothers in arms. So it's fascinating. And uh, so big part of what our stories is also we want to highlight this uh, collaboration between Black people uh, from the diaspora everywhere with, with Africa. I mean, there's so many things to, to tackle with my questions right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you t- when we're, I've talked yeah. about the education, I don't know for you, I remember going to school and reading books from, you know, Georges Sand or in high school will be Alexandre Dumas and, mm-hmm. and the likes. I never really learned about Burundian authors and Burundian way of, you know, doing theater or whatever. And that's why I wanted to ask you about your background, you know, be it with American system, the French system, slash Ethiopian system here and there. Mm-hmm. And wonder what you can do with your books, for example, if, let me just start with the books and say, hey, we have all this work we're working on and we would like to have it in schools, at home, you know, to be given here and there in foundations. Mm-hmm. And not just read one side of the story. Like, yeah. Um, I remember just learning that Alexandre Dumas was mixed race. It blew, mm-hmm. my, it blew my mind, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Pushkin, mixed race. I was like, what? <laughs> like, it, it really blew my mind. But uh, then again, I love Dostoevsky, which is one of my favorite authors. But it, it came with time. It came with understanding, you know, enjoying their books and here and there. What are you trying to achieve mm-hmm. with, you know, The Last Emperor, for example? Is it just to tell a story and to say, hey, we all have stories. Okay, cool. You know, fine. And yeah, we're on the map, basically. Or is just something that it's really deeper than that? That's a great question because really at the, at the heart of it is a couple of things. Uh, but the main one was, you know, as you were saying, when I was in school, there weren't books like Basket of the Emperor. There weren't many books about Africa. The only one I remember clearly is... Uh, L'Enfant Noir by Kamahalai. Oui, uh, but it was not my favorite, but yeah. keep it there. <laughs> I see. Yeah, um, yeah. exactly. And, and there wasn't a variety either. It was just, just you know. Mm. Um, so really at the heart, I just wanted kids to have a, a, a story like this where they can identify with, uh, especially African kids and, and kids of African descent. Uh, they can identify with a, you know, a young boy hero who's doing, you know, He's a, he's a flawed character. He's not perfect, but he's doing all these great things and he saves his city and, you know, fighting with his bionic lioness. I just wanted like a really cool uh, young black boy hero that kids could look up to. Uh, that was really yeah. my, my intention. Um, and then for me, more personally, it was also a way to kind of revisit my childhood. And of course, the story is a fantasy. It takes place in a futuristic Ethiopia, but the places mm-hmm. and the, the 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 history behind it and the name of the of the characters and all that is all authentic Ethiopian, drawn mo- mostly from real Ethiopian history, and so for me it was a way to revisit that, also uh, write about my experiences as a child discovering this heritage that I had, and what it meant to me, and for me it's always been such a source of pride and something that really build my character and how I think about myself and my worldview. And so I thought I'd have a book where I can, you know, do that almost like therapeutically kind of revisit my own childhood and reconcile it, Uh, but also deliver this history of Ethiopian history 
to all kids so that they, you know, it could spark their curiosity to learn even more and realize that actually Africa has this rich, long history and culture and has made advances in all types of, of areas in literature, in, in um, uh, trade, in science. And all of that is not really available. So I want to make sure as much as possible to put stories out there. And, and it's not just for black people, obviously, uh, that's like the main audience, but um, yeah. it's also for people from the world to get a, a different view of, of this part of the world to told by the people from there who are proud yeah. and, and love their countries. You know? Absolutely. And let me take you then on a second, I think another layer of what you're working on is to say black Africans and black Americans. I know your wife is, you know, Afri um, African-American. I don't know. Mm -hmm. American, I yeah. guess. And, and for me, with everything that just happened, actually, it's funny that we had this interview now, but something that happened in the, in the UK recently when a woman just asked, where are you from? Like, where are you from? Where are you from? And it sparked like a mm -hmm. kind of a mess afterwards. I personally, as a Burundian, I've had those conversations asking what a Martinique is coming from. You know, obviously, it would not make mm -hmm. sense because they don't know where you're from. But if you're from Ghana and you've been living in, in the UK for they just say 10 decades, I will know that you're from, from Ghana at some point. What I'm trying to say here is that there is a lack of education on even us, the East versus the West of the same continent in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Much more when you get to compare with people living in Atlanta. I was like, oh, we're all black. But I'm like, yeah, we're black, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not the same. You know what I mean? Like, what? Yes, we can speak the same language, but it's different. But it's okay to be different. The audience that you're mm. talking about is mainly black, we're just saying, you know, trying to, um, yeah, to touch those, those kids in their hearts and adults uh, as well. How do you reconcile, and maybe it's a good thing that you guys are working together on that, is to say, how do you reconcile both continents, dare I say, both mm. mindsets? Yeah, it's not it's not an easy task. Obviously, we have such a variety on the continent and in the West Indies and in America, and there's uh, you know black people in, in in Europe. So there there's definitely a, a, a wide variety within the black diaspora. But the one thing we're trying to do is well, first obviously, my wife and I's marriage is a marriage of Africa, America the West Indies. And so our essence is really that, and, and we find a lot of power in it. And so thinking of other cultures, and I will just take the kind of most prominent one that we think of in, in terms of a collective uh, white people, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, they, they, the, especially in America, uh, I'll, I'll take it as, as an example, because here it kind of shows the most where you know, it started with all these people from different European countries. And now, you know, fast forward hundreds of years later, all of a sudden there's a collective white people, be it people from, you know, who have origins from Ireland, Greek, Italian, Eastern European, Russian. And if you think about it, they, they have so much differences, but somehow have come together under this one collective block. And I know that it's a lot of it may have happened organically, but some of it is also intentional. And the reason why is because there's strength in numbers. 
So the more people you can kind of put under your your tent or your you know your tribe and 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 start to be like these are we are one people, the more power you will have economically, politically, and in other ways too. But my point basically is that I think for Black people uh, we have that philosophy as well. But I just want to continue strengthening it. I know that there's been movements since Pan African movement, uh, including notably Emperor Haile Selassie and people yeah. like Marcus Garvey and other uh, African leaders, um, you know Kwame Nkrumah, all of that. They they knew that in order for our collective well-being, we have to find points of where we can feel united and feel as one. So I am very much of that school of thought. On, on the surface, these are stories that are entertaining and that will, you know, hopefully educate. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, through the, the behind the idea is also hoping that we can advance the Black agenda as a whole. As a Black diaspora, we need to start to see each other more as the same people rather than different. And I'll add that over hundreds of you know years, uh, there's been efforts to make sure uh, black people were not united, right? Actually, there's been a lot of forces trying to um, make sure Africans in, in general and, and the ones in the old world in Africa and in the new world and the West Indies and, and North America and South America didn't feel that connection. There was a real concerted effort to actually kind of rupture our people. And that has great consequences now. Yeah. And so I think that what we need to do is reverse that because all yeah. African people's history is this did not start in the new world. It started in Africa. And so let's start there and kind of re point back everything there, reconnect with the homeland. And as a people, we will be better off uh, when we are united. Absolutely. I, I love that you just talked about the old world and new world because actually that was, that was my next question. And for me, I, I believe, you know, you can take it as you wish, but I think that Africa, as in the continent, will help African-Americans in, you know, West Indies and French dumb terms and everything to kind of understand themselves once they come on the continent, like what they're trying to do in Ghana with the year of return. Have you heard of that? The year of turn mm -hmm. every December, yes. I think, or something like that. Partying over there, planning to go there. I would love to go there, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I know there was a big one in 2019, right? Uh, oh yeah, that was a lot, everybody yeah, I heard went. It was yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. I think even <laughs> yeah. Beyonce was there, and they had like everybody uh, traveled. Oh okay. Yeah, to Accra. Um, yeah, I love that idea. Uh, I think it's great because, as you were saying, reconnecting with Africa will help you learn about yourself and where you're from when you're from African descent. Absolutely. So what's next then for, for you when you say the old world and the new world? I bet you are part of the new world. What do you see? You're entering 2023. What's your project? Obviously, a movie takes a lot of time. Even podcasts mm -hmm. take a mm -hmm. lot of time. Let's just be real. Um, <laughs> producing something really takes a lot of time. But would you, where are you taking us for the next two, three years? So I will be taking everyone on a journey to discover Africa in its most beautiful, most powerful, most glowing and thriving light. The reason why I say that is because I think there's great stories coming out of Africa, 
especially now with a little bit more positive outlook, but I think there hasn't been enough. So mm-hmm. our plan is to contribute to that canvas, if you will, of stories where, sure, we can deal with adversity and, and the problems, but the arc of the story in the end is how we overcome it and how we achieve it yeah. and how we are people who are, you know, from time immemorial till now, always overcoming difficulty and, and, and you know, the norms and challenging the status quo for a better future. And right now, I know that Africa has both, you know, a lot of issues still, but it's also the most promising continent right now worldwide. And I think everybody agrees on that in terms of uh, economic opportunity, in terms of the population growing, about how many, how many young and, and uh, you know, young people are part of our population. So Africa is the future. And so I want to take us on that journey to the future and help it propel it, make it like a, a, a rocket launch uh, so that everybody can, you know, um, learn about Africa and, and it can become this shining uh, light, the shining city on the hill. <laughs> uh, I won't <laughs> use that, but just, but just <laughs> saying that, you know, people will look to Africa for, you know, advances in the future and moving humanity forward. Do you feel like Jamaica, the country, will follow your work because of who you are? Or where you're from, actually? <laughs> oh, we have great, great love uh, for Jamaica. Uh, I have many Jamaica friends. And yes, we our, our two countries are intertwined. Uh, we have a, a natural affinity. And uh, yes, they're always supporting. And, and, you know, we owe them a great debt of <laughs> gratitude uh, because they've kept also Emperor Haile Selassie's memory alive. Uh, you oh, know, yeah, they made yeah. his face really mainstream. So, no, they're absolutely part of the picture. And my wife and I actually did our honeymoon in Jamaica. So, oh, yes, okay. Love Jamaica. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good call. And, yeah, yeah. and my question then will be not as an historian, because you're not, but working on the history of Africa, obviously, is World War II. Obviously, Africa has played a huge role, as you said, with Ethiopia and many mm-hmm. other countries, be it Senegal and, you know, Ivory Coast. And That's right. What? Do, do we, I'm not going to say I celebrate, but like, you know, those celebrations here in France. Do you take the time to just remember what the Africans did, like, mm. during the war? Do you take that moment or do you say, hey, you know, they're just tools among, you know, the, this, the French mm. army or the this one? Yeah. So are you asking if um, basically these kind of... Um, moments in history maybe when their anniversary comes up thinking about the sacrifices that people made and how they fought and all that yeah i will say that definitely the one time i like to celebrate africa a lot is on africa day um you know may 25th uh because that's when the african union the organization african unity was created oh and um in l.a Actually, there's uh, this great uh, group, media group called Amplify Africa. They're great. We befriended them. They, uh, it's this two Nigerian guys who founded it. And they celebrate uh, what's called Africon. It's a, it's a conference about African culture, the music, entertainment, business, all of the great industries. And it's celebrated around that time. And for me, it's a special time, obviously, because my great-grandfather... Emperor Haile Selassie was one of the founders of the Organization for African Unity. So I feel like that's a moment where I, it's my driving kind of uh, force 
behind everything I do is this Pan-African spirit and that day celebrates it to the max. So that's one day I like to celebrate. Uh, but definitely thinking about Africans who contributed so much, like you said, in World War II and, and, and in other places, even in the world, uh, the war in Korea, Ethiopia actually went there and, and, yeah. and, and you know, provided some uh, fighting forces for that. Uh, I know in France, and actually I believe there's a, there's a movie coming out, right, with Omar Sy, about like les 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 tirailleurs sénégalais. Exactly. Yes, yes, I'm really that. looking forward to seeing that. Exactly. Um, and I think it's it's yeah. very important. Th those are I'm so happy to see it because obviously I'd love to tell like a million stories, but it, it's always great to see kind of in in the ether right now that there's a lot of these stories that are coming to light because black people's contributions have always been downplayed or or really kind of written out of history entirely. So now with the momentum we have, it's great to see stories that celebrate what Africans did, even in these great world chapter stories like World War One, World War Two. Really looking forward to that. And they made sacrifices that benefited all of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so they should be held as heroes. So yes, we, we should celebrate those. All right. So you said, you know, more stories, more uh, more stories about Africa and everything. Do you want to say something for the French listeners? who might heard something when you say something as Omar Sy, do you want to say something like about France? Where you, you know, the memories, the good, the sure. bad? I don't know. You choose. Yes. How many baguettes you ate? Wait, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I miss all that. Ça me manque, les baguettes, les, les croissants, le, le pâté, le, <laughs> un bon vin, un bon rosé. C'est ça, ah, t'es vraiment du sud. Toutes ces bonnes choses. Ah, t'es oui, vraiment oui, du ça. sud. Oui, dans le sud, exactement. Oui, ouais, je suis vraiment du sud. Ouais. <rire> J'ai pas dit pastis, parce que ça, c'est pas, oh, pas mon type de, de, de boisson. Non. Vrai. non, le pastis, c'est dégueulasse. Mais un bon rosé. Oui, euh, ok. Oui, oui. Euh, mais non, mais ça me manque énormément, la France. Et, et, et la France est toujours dans mon cœur. Et j'ai beaucoup d'aspirations mm -hmm. que... Une fois qu'on s'établit ici, on peut commencer à dire des, euh, à, à, aussi, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting my French, obviously, as you see, but uh, basically provide stories uh, pour les francophones aussi, parce que l'Afrique est une grande partie est francophone, et je suis francophone, et mm -hmm. j'aime aussi beaucoup les, les, les histoires qui viennent de, de uh, l'Afrique de l'Ouest mm -hmm. et, et l'Afrique de l'Est, um, et donc, uh, Soyez patient, on va, on va arriver <rire> au, au moment où on pourra aussi euh, faire des films en français ou ah, au moins génial. avec de, de, de la langue au, au sujet, avec des sujets qui, qui, qui sont plus attachés aux, aux, aux Africains qui sont francophones. Ah bah c'est super, parce que moi je te le dis franchement, avant que je te laisse, euh, je pense que les mm -hmm. premières images d'un dessin animé, ok, et je pense que toute la, toute mm -hmm. la francophonie va comprendre ce que je veux dire, euh, c'était Kirikou. Alors, si tu as le, mmh, la référence Kirikou, ouais. voilà. Et ça, c'était sur Canal ouais. quand j'étais jeune. Là, là, là. Et je me rappelle, les gens disaient, mais c'est un, ouais. un dessin animé génial. Et you're like, but, I mean, what? <laughs> what is this? Until now, people are like, ah, Kirikou. And I'm like, it's, no, no, at least donne-moi le, le Roi Lion. Tu vois ce que je veux dire? At least. <laughs> oui, le Roi Lion, oui, oui. Ça, c'est une meilleure réponse. Il y a deux, trois mois, on se fait un Il y a deux, trois trucs. Là, il y a Wakanda. At least you can bring me something. Et c'est là où je me suis dit, mmh. uh, quand je faisais mes recherches l'année dernière et tout, is to, is to think of the images that really stand like with time, like kids who watch Kirikou when they were like seven, still associate black people, Africans or whatever. You're like, ah, oh, t'as pas grandi en France? Ah oh, ouais. You're like, 
Mm. Oui, mais moi, j'ai grandi avec Canal+, les gars. <rire> j'ai grandi avec un autre standard. Et tout le monde n'est pas Kirikou. Et nous, on manquait de l'autre côté un, un autre... Euh, d'autres histoires, on va dire, qui doivent être traduites ou whatever. But at least to bring something on the table, to have conversations. And I feel like that, that's what you're doing and that's why I was really drawn to your work. I'm grateful that you guys mm. are keep on growing and, you know, old world, new world. <laughs> Let's talk about disruption in that space because it is what it is. And my last, last question will be like, are you planning to leave like LA? Because LA, everybody's leaving LA. <laughs> it's just, I don't know how you guys are coping with that. Obviously with work and stuff, but, you know, have to tease some people over there. You're saying people are leaving yep. LA? Yeah. Oh, okay. If it is not prime, um, it is whatever. I don't know. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's, you know, obviously even the wildfires and the droughts and and uh, living expenses. It's it's yeah. it's it's quite something. It's it's a lot to live in LA. So I get it. <laughs> uh, but interestingly, uh, when we came back in uh, 2020, we actually had noticed a movement of people coming into LA, even people from the East Coast. Uh, so my wife is a, born and raised in the East Coast, hardcore okay. East Coaster. And, you know, they say we'll never live in the West Coast. And then here we are now. <laughs> and so I think it's interesting that now, uh, because there's been a lot of movement, we met a lot of people here who are from New York, from the East Coast in general. But LA right now is the place where we're establishing our company. Mm. Um, so we'll be here for for the foreseeable future all right uh, and then we'll see uh you know we'll see what 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 next what well, next few years bring. en tout cas merci beaucoup for your time thanks for like yeah for your work and you know encouraging you to do more and hopefully who knows we'll work together once some point bring some brain yeah definitely Ethiopian let's stay in touch. yeah absolutely so take care man absolutely yeah thanks really great talking to you alex i'm glad uh, i'm glad we made it happen <laughs>